All right, so we're taking a few weeks and we're talking about God, of all crazy things that a church would do. Three weeks to consider who our God is. Now, all of eternity, I said last week, is not going to be enough for us to exhaust all of this, so how in the world do you pretend to be able to do it in a few weeks? Well, by creating some manageable bites. That's how you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. So here are the four bites I want us to get that will deepen our understanding, and then because of that, our love for this amazing God who created us. So God in his uh, oneness is great, and God in his fatherhood is good. God in in the Son is enough, and God in the Spirit is more. So last week we looked as at God as one and the Father, and in his oneness he's great. We saw that he was almighty, being able to create and sustain and providentially guide all things towards his purposes, but then we also saw that he was awesome in being so capable of all that and being intimately involved and engaged and interested in every little detail on earth, including every one in your life. That's awesome. That's amazing. Which leads us to see why when referred to as one, God is one, he's often referred to as the Father. Because in the Father, he's good. He's given you his name to call him by name. You don't have to just call him God. The way that's rendered in English is Lord, all capital letters. That's his literal name, and you can call him by name. And then he gave you his son so that you could become a child of his, just showing how amazingly good he is. So because he's great, we need to let him be personal. And because he's good, we need to let him be our parent. Now, this week, we want to take our next little bite. So this is what we need to do today. Sounds pretty easy. We need to see who he is as the son in exacting and fulfilling in time and space the eternal plan of creation, redemption, restoration, and the greater glorification of God. We can do that a few minutes, don't you think? I don't think so either. So, how are we going to do this? How about God and the Son is enough? Well, what, I mean by, what do I mean by that? Well, he's sufficient, he's fully identifying, he's submissive, empathetic, complete, kind, and authoritative, exacting all that the Father intended. Sounds even easier, right? Right. I mean, no matter way you, how you try and render this, the immense nature of who Christ is because of what the Father has done is, is just mind-blowing. So, prepare to have your mind blown. Now, in order for that to happen, please use your notes today because I'm going to give you a lot of information, even if you don't usually do them. Pull it out and look at them. There's a little slip of paper like this in your bulletin. And just follow along, and you might want to fill it in because just trust me this time, okay? All right? So a scholar, Millard Erickson, says this. When we come to study the person and the work of Christ, we're at the very center of Christian theology. That makes sense. For since Christians are, by definition, believers in and followers of Christ, their understanding of Christ must be central and determinative of the very character of the Christian faith, which is a really beautiful and wonderful and erudite way of saying, if you're a Christian, you better know Christ. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
So there's an anchor passage I want to go to that is a classic, what we call a Christological passage. Describes him in much of his fullness, though words would never be able to render it all. Let me read this passage. It's from Colossians chapter 1, and it says this. The Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of all your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. There's a lot in there, and I got a way of trying to pull out the elements for you. The first thing I want you to understand is that there is a key word in this passage that unlocks the passage. If you don't understand this word, it becomes a distraction. If you do understand it, you see something that relates to Christ and Christ alone. Kind of like the, the key word of a puzzle or maybe of some kind of code. And once you have that, the greater understanding is unlocked. So the word is firstborn. Now, very obviously, there's two concepts in the word, first and born. The first is about supremacy expressing priority to and preeminence over, not just in an in order of events, but supremacy over. So the examples in the passage are he's firstborn over creation and also over the resurrection. So in creation, he did create, he did first create anything that exists, but he's always existed. So this wasn't the first in that sense, just of chronological order. Instead, he's preeminent over creation. The other example is even better when it comes to the resurrection. He's firstborn over the resurrection. He, though not the first to be resurrected, you do realize that, right? Jesus was not the first one to be resurrected. There are about 15 resurrections in the Bible. The most obvious one that many know is about Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus after he was resurrected eventually? Well, he died. Christ is preeminent over the resurrection because he was the first one to ever be resurrected that never died again. See the supremacy that's infused in this concept. So he's first, and then he's first born. Now this one's a little more lost on us. I'm going to unwrap it a little bit more as we, as we go along through this. It's used multiple times in Scripture. We're really talking about an ancient custom here that's more meaningful to them than to us. But a person who was first born in a family 
was accorded rights and privileges not shared by the offspring. We're so, the other offspring, we're so uh, democratic around here, we're going to make sure that everything's equal among everybody gets the same otherwise. But in the ancient and for most millennia, the firstborn had special privileges. That person was a representative and an heir, and to him was given management of the household. So, simple answer to firstborn is this. Supremacy. Privilege and the unique place of authority. Now, because I know you're overachievers, I'm going to take you to some extra credit understanding of this word. You with me? But if you're going to lose me on this, just stick with the supremacy, okay? But I know you're smarter than that. So, here it becomes a unique term of unity and sufficiency. Listen to a scholar, and then I'll try and interpret it. As a title of honor for Jesus, prototokos, which is this Greek word, expresses more clearly than almost any other the unity of God's saving will, what he wants to do, and his saving acts that he actually accomplished it. The creator and the redeemer are the same. The all-powerful God in Christ Jesus, first and last, beginning and the end, binds his own to himself from eternity and is their surety of salvation if they abide in him. So in other words, these are my words now, in many ways, this is the one word that ties Jesus Christ's deity and his humanity together with his supreme ability and sufficient identity. In other words, what was necessary on both ends to create and sustain and accomplish and fulfill and glorify God as this great, marvelous creator, sustainer that he is, on the one hand, he was also at the same time able to accomplish the task of redeeming and restoring man to himself, whose rebellion and that of Satan began to threaten all that God had in store. And God the Father decided that he was going to invest in this one person all that was necessary to create, sustain, accomplish, fulfill, and glorify, and at the same time, Solve the mess we created in the middle. The more complete answer to firstborn is this. He is supremely sufficient. He's not only supreme because of who he is, he's absolutely and completely capable of accomplishing everything necessary from A to Z. In a word, he is enough enough. In the Son, the second person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father has invested everything necessary to create, sustain, reconcile, redeem, complete, judge, and accomplish his perfect plan for all creation, man in particular, and his own personal glorification above all. Whoa. That's one important person. God has decided to make Jesus Christ the focal point of his plan. He's invested in him all that's necessary for all these things. Now, that to some of us is just amazing and it's great and it's wonderful. Think of it this way too though. One of the reasons we struggle with Jesus Christ being all that he is is because there is absolutely no one else like him, is there? He is completely, fully, absolutely unique. 
He has no parallel. He has no comparison. There is no one like him. Now, to some, the skeptical thinker, that makes him implausible. How can that be? That, to the ignorant mind, could make him imperceptible. That's not possible. And that certainly makes him a target of anyone that would be threatened by him in all of his authority, position, power, and ability to accomplish what he wants to do. So what does God do in that situation? He just screams from heaven, I'm God, deal with it! No, he really doesn't. He takes the reality of this essence and his depth of being, and he unwraps it. And I want us to see that in the passage because it not only helps us understand more of who he is, it helps us understand more of who he is to us. So, what can enough mean? And as firstborn, I'm telling you, because of all that's invested in that, it means he's enough. Well, what can enough mean? First of all, let me let the passage speak for itself, and we'll talk about him, and we'll get to you, but let's just let him be him for a minute. And look at what this passage says about him. Verse 15 says he's the image of the invisible God. That means he is real enough. He is tangible. He's understandable. He's perceptible. If you want to see God, this is him. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the exact representation of his being. John chapter 1 verse 1 John the Apostle says, that which we have seen, no, that which was from the beginning, so this great God, we have heard with our ears, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked on and we've touched with our hands. He's real. Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's real enough. Then, verse 15 goes on to say, he's the firstborn over all creation. He is important enough. He is supreme and the sustainer of everything. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. And I'm going to add here, verse 18 then says that he's also the head of the church. Now, that's a whole other message because this is a message on Christ. That's why the cross is here to kind of give you that visible representation today. All that that represents in him the church trines, finds tremendous value, position, and place because Christ is the head of that. Whole another message, not going to go there, just that's in the text as well. Then it says in verse 17, he is before all things. He's old enough. Now, usually that's not a, a good uh, concept, except when you get to be 99, everybody goes, oh, that's nice, you live to be 99. I mean, no, nobody wants to get old, you know, and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. How about we think about this a little differently? He was never created. He was before all things and all time. Verse 18 says he is the beginning. He's old enough in that sense. And I'll apply that again in a minute. Verse 18 says he was the first among the dead. He's powerful enough. I explained this already. He's first to resurrect and not die again. He conquered death. Only he has the power to do that. He's not only the author of life, he's the victor over death. This proves his supremacy. Verse 19 says, in, in him, the fullness of the Godhead 
dwells. God chose to invest his fullness in him. He is God enough. No question about his deity or his authority. The first part of verse 20 says, through him the world was reconciled. Now, we go from him being so amazingly powerful, able to accomplish all of this, being the same person, beginning to end without time, God enough to kind enough. And that's what I tried to show you the first time with God the Father. So amazing that he can do all that. So awesome that he cares. Once again, we go from in the beginning of verse 20, or 19, verse 19, to verse 20, where he is that kind. In other words, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed to the Father, he said, your will be done, not my own. And in that moment, he made you more important than himself. He's that kind. Wow. Great and good. And then, verse, second part of verse 20, he reconciles all things, whether heaven, on earth, whatever, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Very specific of how this had to be done. He's complete enough. There was great detail and a fully sufficient sacrifice that was necessary, and he did it, and he did it for all. And then verses 21 to 23 go on to explain how that particularly applies to you. So that's what it means when we say, when I say, he's enough. He's real enough. He's important enough. He's old enough. He's powerful enough. He's God enough. He's kind enough. And he's complete enough to be everything that the Father has decided to accomplish in his plan. Well, does it matter? Does it matter to us? What does it mean that he be enough for me? And now's where I want to go to that. What can enough mean to me? If Jesus Christ really is all that... I'm saying isn't that this passage says, what does that mean to me? Here's the point. He is all of this and more. So, following me, with me, any thought that you have that would make him any less than all that he is needs to be addressed. Do you follow me? If he really is all that he is, any thought Practically, and I'll begin to unwrap what that means. That would cause him to be to you any less than he is, you need to get a hold of. And you need to change. Because he is all that he says he is. So, let me give you some suggestions of what that could look like so that we could understand what we might be missing, intentionally or unintentionally, and making him any less than he actually is because everything that he is has everything to do with who he wants to be to you. So, let's see what I mean. If he's real enough, that means he's real enough to empathize. And that's not sympathize said this to you before. You know the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy feels for someone. Empathy experiences the very same thing. 
fact, I like the adjustment that was made in the latest version of the NIV in the next verse I'm going to do because it used to say sympathize and now it says empathize because he doesn't just feel bad for you. He knows exactly what you're going through. That means that there is nothing he can't understand about you and your circumstances and your situation. Do you realize that? Can Jesus Christ be enough that he understands you, your past, your situation, your circumstances? Remember, any thought we have that would say, well, I don't know. You don't know my situation. You don't, you know, and it, and, I, and I'm overwhelmed and I'm overcome and, I'm, and he can't. That's us making him less than he's supposed to be, than he is. We do not have a high priest who cannot or is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin, Hebrews 4, 15. He's real enough to empathize. He's important enough to intervene. That means there's nothing he can't do to address your circumstances. He is supreme and the sustainer of all. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus calms the storm in the boat while the disciples are in there. Remember, he was asleep and they were all terrified and they wake him up and he goes, hush. And everything stops and they said, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. He can do that and guess what? He does do that still. He's important enough to intervene into your circumstances. Not even just empathize, but actually do something about it. He's old enough to understand. Again, we minimize this concept, but consider it once more this way. He can see all the implications and the ramifications of all the things, past, present, and future. Wouldn't you like to know that? Wouldn't you like to know all that's going to happen because of a decision you have to face and how it's going to turn out? He's old enough to be able to see it all in one single point in time. In John 58, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. We sang it in one of our songs. Perfect present tense. Ever, always present and all knowing. He's old enough to understand the whole picture. Then he's powerful enough to overcome. If he can conquer death, then he can certainly assure you of your destiny and you can trust that. If he can rise from the dead and never die again, he is the author of life, the victor of death. And he can certainly determine your destiny if you will trust him. Because that's who he is. Romans 10, 9 and 10 say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How can he do that? Because he's powerful enough to overcome. He's the author of life and the victor over death. He's God enough to reconcile all things. There's no task left undone. The passage says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He not only has the power, he has the authority. He's not just some kind of spiritual thug who's powerful. He has the authority to execute everything that the Father has told him to do. And then, in all of that greatness, he's kind enough to accept you right where you are. You would think that a God so great and so powerful and so holy and so true 
would look at you, measly little person, and say, what's your problem? Instead, he doesn't. He's kind enough to look at you right where you are. Okay, let's put it this way. Remember the disciples sleeping in the garden while he was praying and they couldn't stay awake? While they were sleeping on him, he submitted to the Father's will to take their place. Let me put it to you this way. He doesn't just love you He loves you still. Oh, I know there was a time, you know, when I repented of my sin. I know that I, and I I, I realized that God loved me, but you don't understand what's happened, you know, since then. Capture the thought. Anything that would cause you to think that he's any less than all that he is needs to be taken under control. If he were to look you in the eye right now, on your worst day, he would say, I love you still. He's that kind. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't make the disciples stay awake. He was disappointed that they were sleeping but he took their place anyway. And he's complete enough to present you holy in his sight. Colossians 1.22, without blemish and free from accusation. Nothing has been left out. Listen to this. Nobody is just squeaking into heaven. We play a, a false, humble little game like that. We trust in Jesus, but our life's a mess, and this and that, and we kind of, you know, give these self-serving comments of, of, of not being, you know, great and good enough, and I'm just, you know, and I trust Jesus, but man, I'm just going to be one of those down there, you know, just sneaking in the door. Somebody else is going to have, the, you know, the big mansions and all the rewards, and I'll just be glad to be there. Well, I got a word for you. God's going to pull you from the back of that crowd, stand you before the Father, fully dressed in His righteousness, and say, this one is perfectly clean. Wow. Do you get that? It's overwhelming, isn't it? Listen, we're not enough. We know it. We know it from our own personal inadequacies. We know it from people who have let us down and disappointed us. We are not enough. That being said, follow this thought, which I think is the teleological argument for the existence of God. Though none of us are sufficient, none of us are enough, none of us have ever seen anybody who's really enough, nobody's all that, we can conceive of what that is. Can't we? Though no one's perfect, we can conceive of the concept of perfection. It's one of the innate things that tells us that there is a perfect God and that he does exist. 
Now, what we tend to do is project our failure and our disappointments on others and God in this case. And for our own convenience of fear or of, of disappointment, we don't let him be enough because he might let us down just like everybody else has. Let the facts speak for themselves. We need to let the facts teach us otherwise. The fact that such sufficiency is possible belies the fact that God, in fact, can be perfectly sufficient. And the facts of his revelation tell us that that's more than just plausible. It's verifiable. It's real. It's true. And any thought that would deny that is only our saying God can't be enough for me. So, all that means, all of that ranting and raving means He is all you need. Our great triune God has decided to make this just as simple as he possibly can. Not easy, because Jesus had to do all that. But he's made it so clear. You want to know what you need? You need my son, Jesus Christ. And he is all you need. For in him, God was pleased to have all the fullness of the Godhead dwell. To create, to sustain, to reconcile, to redeem, and to ultimately glorify himself in and through all that he's doing. And that includes in the lives of you and me. So the question remains, will you let the Son be enough? All of that theology comes right down to this reality. Will you let Jesus be enough? What does that mean? Is he enough to empathize with your situation? Not just feel bad for you, there is nothing you experience that he does not know. No. Do you believe that? Or once again, willingly, wittingly, or unwittingly, do we cross our arms and say, he can't possibly understand me? That would be making him less than he is. Will you let him be enough? Will you let him be enough to intervene in your circumstances? Will you trust him to work his will and his way for his purposes so that all these things you face are used for his good and for yours? Will you let him be enough to understand all the past, all the present, all the future, and all of the implications? And will you rest in that? Or will you worry? Because maybe he missed something? That would be making him less than what he is. Will you let him be enough to overcome? To 
to absolutely securely determine your destiny and never doubt it again? Because he's God and he conquered death and he is the author of life and if he wants to save you, he does and he will and you never have to doubt it again if you place your faith in him. Will you let him be enough to reconcile you perfectly and completely? Do you believe that he can make you more and more like his son every day? Or do you, after a while, just give up and say, I don't know, I just can't get over it. Whatever that besetting sin is or that situation, those circumstances, they just, they're bigger than me. And apparently they're bigger than God and he just can't seem to help me out of this. Are you going to belittle him that way? Or would you let him continue to reconcile you perfectly and completely? Will you let him accept you and love you still? Or do you sometimes, looking in the mirror, go, ah, not a chance. He wouldn't forgive me again, would he? To think so is to only make him less. Because if he showed up, he'd look at you and say, I love you and I love you still. And will you let him be enough to present you faultless, pure, holy, and complete in his presence that day? Or do you sell short what he wants to accomplish by robing you in his righteousness? If I asked you before you came in if you believed that Jesus was all you needed, I think most of you would have said, Amen. But when we unwrap it like this, are we sure that we practice that every day? I don't, because these little thoughts come in that would compromise who he is in all of his greatness. Don't let it happen. Let the truth of God's word speak into your life and your situation and against your circumstances and against your own self and allow him to be all that he means to be in all of his truth, in all of his power, in all of his authority. And let's ask him to do that because we're all on a journey of making it more and more about him, aren't we? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for doing all that you've done in your son. We're amazed. We can't grasp it all. But I pray that your spirit would be working today in our hearts and minds to help us grasp it a little more and to help us see where in any way we are making you less than you actually are. And would you work in each one of us where each one is and that's a different place for all of us 
and allowing you this week to just be a little more of who you actually are in our lives. In all of this list of things, help us to find the right place of application. For all of us, Lord Jesus, would you please help us let you be all we need. Rest in your sufficiency. Grow in your wisdom. Depend on your work. Live in your love. And hope in the reality that one day, truly, you will fix everything. Help us by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.